Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 27. This episode is Charles Fort and the massacre at Fort Caroline. And I'm recording it in Austin, Texas on June 25th, 2021. As is often the case, music for the writing of this episode is courtesy of WWOZ in New Orleans. The now familiar art for the logo of the History of the Americans podcast comes from the corner of an engraving by the great Theodore de Bry, who depicted the exploration of North America in a series of extraordinary works of art in the late 1500s. The logo comes from one of several engravings that carry the caption, Promontory of Florida, at which the French touched, which we know to be Fort Caroline, the subject of the second part of this episode. So every episode of the History of the Americans is pointed, in a way, at this one. This is also a shout-out to my graphic designing daughter, Emma, who found DeBry's work and designed the podcast logo on short notice back in December. I'll put a link to DeBry's art in the show notes in case you want, as you should, to see more of it. Last time we looked at the geopolitical and evangelical objectives for the settlement of Florida and the hapless mission of Tristan de Luna. Not only was Luna supposed to establish a permanent colony at Pensacola, but he was also ordered to march across Florida into South Carolina and build a base at Paris Island, or thereabouts, on the Atlantic coast. He failed at both. Spain would not return to Pensacola for more than a century but the Atlantic coast remained strategically important. In 1559, Spain's network of spies had turned up evidence that French Protestants were preparing to set up a colony at Paris Island, or thereabouts. Spain's King Philip II understandably viewed the French plans as offensive to Spain's claim in North America, potentially threatening to Spanish treasure ships that had to sail up the North American coast to catch the westerlies back across the Atlantic. And finally, an intolerable metastasizing of Protestant apostasy in the New World. Geopolitical and confessional competition among Spain, England, and France would shape the eastern seaboard of North America and lead eventually to the establishment by the English of not only the lost colony at Roanoke Island, but also the surviving settlement at Jamestown in 1607. We have touched on this dynamic in previous episodes, and now seems a good time to bring it all together. In October 1517, 25 years after Columbus's first voyage, the German theologian and Augustinian monk Martin Luther touched off the Protestant Reformation, which rapidly spread in various forms, especially in Northern Europe. In the history of the Americans, the spread of Protestantism in France, and especially England, would be of decisive importance. Let's start with England. In 1527, the heretofore loyal Catholic Henry VIII, the great hound dog of the English Renaissance monarchy, sought but failed to obtain an annulment of his long-standing marriage to Catherine of Aragon from Pope Clement VII. That Catherine was the aunt of Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, who had succeeded Ferdinand and Isabella as King of Spain and would precede Philip II, may well have influenced the Pope's decision more than his fear of God. 
This irritated Henry no end, so he broke with the Catholic Church and by 1534 established himself as head of the new Church of England. Charles V was, of course, not happy to see his aunt kicked to the curb. He would retaliate by discriminating against English merchants trading in Spanish ports, which would push many legitimate traders to become freebooters and privateers. The great age of English piracy began with a fat king's divorce. Henry VIII and Catherine had had a daughter, Mary. Henry, divorce now secured from a compliant English church, went on to marry Anne Boleyn. The two of them had a daughter, Elizabeth. In 1547, Henry died, leaving behind a dog's breakfast of a succession plan. After six years of jostling and low-grade civil war, Mary emerged as Queen Mary I, also known to history as Mary Tudor, or Bloody Mary. Mary resolved to restore the Catholic Church in England, and to that end burned a bunch of Protestants at the stake, and in 1554 married Prince Philip of Spain, who would be Philip II, who by my reckoning was her first cousin, once removed, insofar as he was Mary's mother's nephew's son. Got it? Marrying Mary made Philip II king of Spain, also king of England. Not surprisingly, Mary's approval ratings plummeted. In November 1558, Bloody Mary would die and Philip's reign over England would terminate as a matter of law. Mary's half-sister Elizabeth would succeed her and immediately after her coronation in early 1559, would go to work returning England to Protestantism and re-establishing the crown's authority over the Church of England. Meanwhile, France was officially Catholic but resistant to Spanish geopolitical hegemony. France also had to contend with a substantial Protestant minority known as Huguenots or Huguenots to we Anglo-Saxons, who in early 1562 won some measure of religious freedom from the French crown. This would touch off the French Wars of Religion, an extremely bloody conflict that would engulf France for most of the rest of the century. Generalizing perhaps too much, from 1562 to 1598, France would be the epicenter of religious strife in Europe, with Spain and various Catholic principalities and the major Protestant powers, including England and Scotland, intervening at various points in support of their respective side. This is why, by the end of the 1550s, the Protestants of England, who are now in control of their country, and France, who are not in control of theirs, would begin to look at the Atlantic coast of North America as a place to confront Spain without triggering a war on the continent of Europe that they would probably lose. The Protestant base in South Carolina would not only stand athwart Spanish expansion up the East Coast, but it would also be a great place for privateers to lurk, waiting to snatch the treasure ships bringing gold and silver from South America and Mexico. So now it is 1562 in North America. In June, Tristan de Luna's successor, Angel de Villafane, leads three ships toward South Carolina, only to have a hurricane, you can't see my shocked face, come and wreck them. He would not see the French who were already working their way along the coast from Jacksonville to Paris Island. In February 1562, a French naval officer named Jean Ribot set sail from Le Havre with two ships and 150 French colonists, mostly Huguenot, for Florida. 
They reached the coast of Florida in the vicinity of Jacksonville by late April 1562 and explored the mouth of the St. John's River there. On May 1st, Rabot and some of his men went ashore on Baton Island and offered a prayer of thanksgiving for having made it safely across the Atlantic. In the words of historian, and it should be said, United States Congressman Charles E. Bennett, writing in 1956, these Huguenots were the first people to come to what is now the United States for freedom. Well, anyway, the first people from the Western Hemisphere to come for freedom. Devoted and attentive listeners know that Indians had been fleeing to Florida from the Greater Antilles and the Bahamas to escape Spanish slavers since before Ponce de Leon discovered it for the Spanish in 1513. However, if we're racking up firsts, and who doesn't love to do that, we should tally that this was almost certainly the first Protestant religious ceremony on American soil. Rabot left a white stone marker of possession engraved with fleur-de-lis in the date 1561 in Roman numerals on the south side of the mouth of the river, and then sailed north along the coast to Paris Island, South Carolina. There he set up another marker and built a small fortified house and designated a garrison with 27 men to hold the position for France. This he named Charles Fort, after France's King Charles IX. The remaining 120 or so departed for France with a promise to return well within the year. This did not happen because on his return, Ribot would be caught up in the French wars of religion and ultimately find himself arrested and imprisoned in London. More on all of that in a moment. Before we get to the main event, the founding of and massacre at Fort Caroline, which Huguenots would establish in 1564 back down in the Jacksonville area, Let's take a look at what happened to the 27 men left behind at Charles Fort. Much of what we know about that comes from the interrogation of a single French sailor, a man only 17 years old named Rufi, the substance of which was recorded in the report of Manrique de Rojas on the French settlement in Florida, 1564. After Ribot's return to France, he and his men reported that they had left the two stone markers claiming the lands from roughly Jacksonville to Paris Island for Charles IX. Word of this eventually got back to Philip II, who quite correctly believed that Spaniards had claimed La Florida many times over, and that the Brie eaters across the Pyrenees had no business there. Philip lodged a protest with the French government and not getting the response he desired, ordered the governor of Cuba to arrange to remove the French stone markers and to destroy any fort that he might find. The governor directed one Captain Hernando Manrique de Rojas to sail up the coast of Florida and do exactly that. The order includes rather specific boundaries of latitude and other details, suggesting that Philip's intelligence was on target, quoting directly from a translation done in 1959. You will proceed thus along the coast until you reach the St. Helena River, which is in latitude 32. You will enter the river and attempt to find a wooden fort which is there, and to learn whether there are any French in it, and if so, their number and quality, what artillery they have, where they are established, what are their relations with the Indians, what force they have, and what preparation will be necessary in order to expel them. 
If you find the circumstances such that you can drive them out of the fort, you will do so, bringing to me, as prisoners, those of whom you can capture. You will also bring all the artillery, arms, and booty which you may take from them, raising the fort so completely that no trace of it shall remain. Of course, booty had a different meaning back then. And now May 1564, Captain Manrique took a frigate and about 25 men on his mission, scouting every possible landing place from roughly Daytona Beach north, looking for signs of the French. His scrivener documented all the ins and outs and what have you, so we know that Manrique's men never found Rabot's marker near Jacksonville. Neither did they find any Indians in the area who had seen Christians, as the scrivener put it. On May 31st, Manrique's ship entered what he believed to be the mouth of a river at latitude 32 degrees, which today we know as the Savannah River, flowing out at Tybee Roads. Over the next couple of days, they mucked around in the area, met some cooperative Indians who described by signs that they had seen bearded men and ships and such. In those first couple of days, however, the only evidence they found was of Spanish origin, a couple of felt hats and other trinkets of Spanish manufacture. The origins of these items are not known, but profoundly loyal and attentive listeners will recall that in 1526, 38 years earlier, the expedition of Lucas Vasquez de Ayon had established San Miguel de Gualdape on Tybee Roads, almost smack on the Georgia-South Carolina line, which at that point lies at 32 degrees. I don't know how carefully the Indians took care of those felt hats, but I'd lay money they came from Aon's people. Between June 2nd and June 11th, Manrique kept moving up the coast a couple of leagues a day, continuing to question Indians. They entered a river at 32 degrees 30 minutes and met a couple of cooperative Indians who took them to their leader, so to speak. Now back to the report. There he found in the possession of the Indians two iron axes, a mirror, some pieces of cloth, small bells, knives, and many other things made by the hands of Christians. The Indians explained by signs and some intelligible words that there had been at their village 34 men with a ship, that 33 of them had gone away and one had remained with them in that land and was now in a village which they said was called Usta. They said that they would send for him, and he would come the next day. The Indian messengers departed at once, and at noon on the 12th of June, there appeared before the captain, in the presence of me, the scrivener, and of witnesses, the said Christian, clothed like the Indians of that country, who declared himself to be a Frenchman. The Spanish had in their crew one Martin Perez, who spoke enough of one of the many then extant French dialects that he was able to translate. Both were put under oath, that having a great deal of significance in that God-fearing age. He identified himself as Guillaume Rufi, a native of France, and that he had come with Captain Ribot. Rufi told the Spanish everything, including the nature of Ribot's ships, how they were armed, and how many men they carried. Here's some more of Rufi spilling his guts, which even a Francophile like me cannot much blame him for. Asked by whose command and at whose cost the expedition had been arranged and what had been its destination, 
He replied that he understood the expedition to have been made up and sent out at the command and cost of the Queen Mother of France. This would have been Catherine de' Medici, who was regent for her young son, the king, and the Admiral of France, and that each of these gave 1,000 ducats to equip the expedition, that it came directly to this coast of Florida to settle on the point and river of St. Helena, and to discover whether it was a good location for going out into the Bahama Channel to capture the fleets from the Indies. This he knows because he heard it said by everyone, and it was common knowledge. Well, Philip would not be pleased to hear this. The Spanish continued their interrogation and learned that most of Ribot's men were Protestants, that they had a Spanish pilot from Seville, and that there was one among them who preached the doctrines of Luther. The Huguenots followed John Calvin rather than Martin Luther, so this was a meaningful distinction at the time to Rufi, even if not to the Spanish. Indeed, the Spanish accounts of the time just refer to followers of Martin Luther as if all Protestants were Lutheran. Rufi further reported that they had set up a stone marker nearby and built a house of wood and earth with a moat and four bastions, and on them had positioned small cannon. Twenty-six men had stayed behind. Historians surmise that Rufi was not counting himself, because Captain Rabot had commanded them to remain there and promised to return within six months with supplies. Rufi further testified that two of the twenty-six had drowned crossing a river in a canoe— and that the captain in charge had been killed in a struggle with one of the other soldiers. So then there were 23. Now Elizabeth had tossed Ribot in the Tower of London on suspicion of spying, where he busied himself writing a book about North America. So Ribot's abandoned men at Charlesfort were running out of supplies. Rufy testified that they had decided to sail home. But on what boat? From Enrique's report, quote, Rufi testified that he and the others who remained, seeing that Captain Jean Rabot did not come, nor did any other Frenchman, decided to go away to France and for that purpose built a 20-ton boat near the fort. That when it was finished, the Indians of the country gave them a number of ropes made of the strong bark of trees, and they rigged the boat with these. The Indians also supplied them with native produce and fed them until they went away in the boat to the province of Gaul, which is just south of this place. There they were given some native blankets, which they made into sails for the boat. Those Indians also gave them supplies. They then returned to the harbor, and the declarant, realizing that there would not be in the boat anyone who understood navigation was not willing to go with them and remained among the Indians of this section where he had been until now. It is about 14 months since they went away and no news of them has ever been received. So I did a fair amount of digging around and most of the accounts are ambiguous about the fate of the Frenchmen who built this remarkable boat with the sails made of blankets, saying only that they returned to France. I did find one old web page in the Internet Wayback Machine, formerly maintained by Professor Charles de Prater of the University of South Carolina, with the following gruesome account. We do not know if the ship was christened and given a name, but we do know that those who sailed in it had a difficult crossing. They were becalmed in the midst of their voyage, and their food supplies soon were exhausted. They resorted to consuming their shoes and other leather gear in an effort to garner any sustenance they might provide. 
One by one, the men began to die. Finally, in an act of ultimate desperation, the surviving mutineers decided that they must kill one of their number to feed the remainder. Poor Lachere, the man who had been banished by the captain, was selected by unknown means. He was killed and his flesh was consumed by his companions. This sacrifice was apparently sufficient for Captain Barre and the other survivors to complete their journey. An English ship, some sources say it was a ship provided by Elizabeth, rescued them off the English coast. According to at least one source, only seven men survived the crossing. This was probably not the first case of cannibalism on the high seas, and it would not be the last. Back in the day, law students in common law countries, including the United States, would read the fascinating case from 1884 of Regina v. Dudley and Stevens, which I commend to you as a foundational text in that gruesome corner of the law. There was a day, not too far in the past, when Europeans viewed cannibalism out of desperation as nothing less than heroic. In any case, under Rufi's direction, the Spanish found Charles Fort. They tore down the building and ceremonially threw the white stone marker on the ground, after which they loaded it up and brought it and Rufi back to Cuba. The forthcoming Rufi, being a Frenchman and a Protestant, was now in a Spanish clink, and he disappears from history. The history of Charles Ford has continued to unfold even recently. In the summer of 1996, the University of South Carolina announced that the original French fortification had been found underneath the remains of the subsequent Spanish Fort of San Marcos. The site of Charles Fort was indeed on Paris Island. I'll put a link to that story in the show notes. The Spanish left for Cuba on June 15th, 1564. Enrique's report includes one final note. The course was via the Bahamas for Havana, quote, as the conditions were not favorable for coasting Florida. Weather conditions meant that the Spanish returning from the raising of Charles Fort missed seeing an entirely new French expedition just then landing in the area of Jacksonville. Jean Ribot having ended up in London and in prison, the second expedition of Huguenots was under the command of René Laudonniere, who had accompanied Ribot in 1562 on the expedition to establish the now-leveled Charles Fort. Laudonniere brought around 300 men and women to the mouth of the St. John's River, on the coast near Jacksonville, arriving on June 24, 1564, almost exactly as Manrique's ship would have passed by had it not swung out to the Bahamas on its return to Cuba. Charles Bennett rather romantically described these French colonizers in a paper published in the Florida Historical Quarterly in 1959. Quote, Perhaps never has our land welcomed a more diverse group. I doubt that, actually. About their only point in common was their desire for freedom. Some wore the gilded armor and brightly colored clothes befitting their high rank. Others were clad in simple clothes, which indicated the manual labor to which they were accustomed. They were not all Frenchmen, and they included, among a predominantly Protestant population, many Catholics. Their movement had been approved by John Calvin, the religious reformer, and by Charles IX, Catholic King of France. Among the settlers were carpenters, mechanics, ordnance men, 
blacksmiths, barbers, tailors, shoemakers, and brewers, as well as an artist, a crossbow maker, an astronomer, a physician, and people of various other talents. At first, there was no regularly ordained preacher and religious services were conducted by laymen. They also conducted missionary work among the Indians. The colonists had a large bell to call the people to worship. These people were not long-faced zealots, however. They were liberal in their views, and they found pleasure in earthly pursuits as well as religious services. They enjoyed drinking the wine which they produced. A letter from one of these settlers stated, We hope to make some wine soon, which will be rather good. It is noted they produced 20 hogshead of wine. A hogshead was not standardized at that point, by the way, but 20 of them was probably at least 1,200 gallons. They enjoyed music by a fiddler, a piano player, drummer, trumpeteers, and fifers. Long after the French control had become a thing of the past, later Floridians would hear the Indians of that neighborhood singing French songs, which they had learned from their romantic French companions. They named the settlement La Caroline after Charles, the King of France. The name eventually morphed into Fort Caroline and then changed formally. Of course, if you're not French, you run into the famous Caroline-Caroline problem. Caroline and Caroline. They got to think about that, man. Don't get that wrong, because they're going to drill you. If you aren't a fan of comedian Brian Regan, you ought to consider becoming one. Fort Caroline was triangular, with moats and a gate decorated with the arms of France and its admiral, with houses both inside the walls and outside them. The colonists came supplied with all they ought to have needed for a stay for the long haul. Seed, tools of all sorts, and horses, sheep, donkeys, chickens, pigs, cattle, and dogs. The settlement at Fort Caroline was also the first glimmer of proto-democratic government within the borders of today's United States. Charles Bennett may have overstated it a bit, but he found a quotation of Laudonniere that I loved. Quote, the community practice in considerable measure the Republican and Democratic principles of political freedom. Even the actual location of the settlement was decided upon by opinions being expressed and, quote, all resolving to live at St. John's Bluff. We found the colonists similarly deciding on the question of whether or not a boat should be fitted up for a voyage to France. There was some criticism from France of Laudonniere's administration, as was thought that he sought complete independence. We find Laudonniere saying of his critics that some people criticize because they think, quote, that by diminishing the work of others, they can add to the force of their own weak courage. That is sometimes one of the most remarkable dangers that can come to a republic. Laudonniere's observation is darn close to a timeless maxim, I would say, and quite possibly the earliest consideration of republican government, at least in the intellectual tradition of Europe, on American soil. The French of Fort Caroline not only taught local Indians their songs, but they traded with them and even intermarried. A young Frenchman named Pierre Gambi set himself up as a businessman and a trader, Gambi grew prosperous and married the daughter of a local Indian chief, only to be murdered by another Indian whose motives were greed, jealousy, or something else. The settlers produced children, too. 
20 years before Virginia Dare was born at Roanoke Colony, eight or ten French babies were born, which Bennett says were the first Europeans known to have been born on American soil. We know that none of the Aeon, Narvice, Soto, or Coronado expeditions would have produced children. We do not know whether any of the women at Pensacola under Luna, professional or otherwise, might have done. The Chronicles do not say. Neither do we know for sure whether any of our famous European refugees fathered children with Indians along the way. You might remember the supposedly white-skinned child that the Coronado expedition encountered in the village where Cabeza de Vaca and the others had passed through. My guess is that Cabeza de Vaca, Castillo, and Odorantes received, shall we say, compensation and services for their faith healing along the way, and may well have distant offspring in the American Southwest, even today. The privateer John Hawkins visited Fort Caroline in 1565, three years before the Battle of San Juan de Ulua, which we talked about in our Pirate's Tale sidebar episode. You will recall that some of the English survivors of that mission, including David Ingram, walked from the Texas Gulf Coast to Fort Caroline looking for the French Huguenots, would be gone well before 1568. At least some of those men were probably along with Hawkins on this earlier mission. Notwithstanding Charles Bennett's inspiring take, when Hawkins arrived in the summer of 1565, things were not going so well. Some disease of lethargy, probably malaria, had taken hold, and Laudonniere's settlers were resolving to go home at the earliest opportunity. Hawkins, being a privateer, had an extra ship, and traded it and some supplies to Laudonniere and returned for Fort Caroline's cannons. The Huguenots of Fort Caroline were getting ready to leave. On August 28, 1565, as Laudonniere was on the brink of setting sail for France, a French fleet appeared at the mouth of the St. John's River just off Fort Caroline. Jean Ribot, now free from prison, was in command and in addition to lots of supplies, had another 600 colonists, all eager to experience the pleasures of northern Florida in late August. Unfortunately for all of them, Philip II had not given up on keeping Florida for the Spanish and for the Catholic Church. After the destruction of Charles Fort, he had learned of the new settlement at Fort Caroline and ordered Pedro Menendez de Aviles to drive the French from Florida. Since I cannot do any better, now let's turn to the account of Florida historian T. Frederick Davis, writing in 1933, about the fateful encounter just after Ribot had arrived. Menendez sailed along the coast seeking the French colony, and at Anastasia Island he learned of its location from the Indians. With five ships he sailed up the coast to reconnoiter and discovered four French ships anchored off St. John's Bar. It was night, and he anchored near them. The French, suspecting trouble, cut the cables and sailed for the open sea, with Menendez in pursuit. They outsailed the Spaniards, and Menendez returned to Anastasia Island, unloaded his supplies, and made preparations for fortifying the place. This was the beginning of St. Augustine, September 8, 1565. The French vessels returned to their former anchorage off St. John's Bar. Ribot and Menendez at once made their plans to attack each other. Ribot's plan was to attack the Spaniards by sea. 
Every able-bodied fighting man was ordered aboard, and the fleet sailed southward. Off St. Augustine, they discovered the Spaniards and prepared to attack. But following a lull, the wind freshened to a gale, and Rabot's vessels were driven down the coast. Menendez marched toward Fort Caroline with 400 men and arrived back of St. John's Bluff about sundown on September 19th, where he camped at the pond, which is still there. The weather was stormy and it rained in torrents. The Spaniards were drenched and their powder was wet and useless. At a council of officers, they debated the question of attacking Fort Caroline. Menendez alone favored attack, the others suggesting an abandonment of the entire enterprise. By argument and persuasion, Menendez finally convinced them, and before dawn of September 20th, 1565, the columns moved forward to the high ground overlooking the fort. Port Caroline was sleeping. On account of the stormy weather, the sentries had been withdrawn and the usual precautions suspended. Laudonniere, who'd been sick, did not go with the fleet. The others at the fort were principally old men, men unskilled in arms, and women and children about 240 in all. The Spaniards had no trouble in entering the fort when an indiscriminate slaughter commenced. As soon as Menendez reached the fort, he directed in a loud voice that no woman or any boy under 15 years of age should be killed, by which 70 were saved. Laudonniere and others escaped over the walls. After terrible hardships in the marshes, they reached the mouth of the river, boarded two small French vessels, and sailed for France where in time they arrived. Several escaped to the Indians and were protected by them. In round numbers, 140 people, including two Englishmen who had been left at the fort by Hawkins, were slain at Fort Caroline by the Spaniards, who did not lose a man. Menendez left a garrison at Fort Caroline, which he renamed San Mateo, and returned to St. Augustine. Rabot's fleet was wrecked along the coast below St. Augustine, Nearly all of the Frenchmen reached the shore in safety, where they seemed to have collected in separate parties and attempted to march back to Fort Caroline, which they did not know had been captured. The Indians soon carried news to Menendez that a party of Frenchmen was at Matanzas Inlet, which is about 50 miles south of the site of Fort Caroline, and Menendez went there to meet them. There were 208 in this party. Menendez spared eight of them and put the rest to the knife the one of the latter revived and returned to his comrades down the coast. Several days later, reports reached Menendez that another party of Frenchmen was at the same place. Ribot was with them. The former procedure was repeated here. Some 150 surrendered and all were killed except 16. The sands of Matanzas were now soaked with the lifeblood of 333 Huguenots, including Ribot and some principal officers. According to Bennett, Menendez spared the Catholics and also persons with particular abilities, including musicians. I suppose live music was a bit scarce in the New World. Bennett's description of the death of Rabot is for the ages. Quote, the man who actually killed Rabot first inquired of him as to whether Rabot did not expect his soldiers to obey orders. Rabot said yes. Then the Spaniard said, I propose to obey the orders of my commander also. I am ordered to kill you. When Rabot knew that he was to die, he said, Twenty years, more or less, are of little account. Then he chanted a psalm 
and received the dagger thrust, which ended his life. In the end, Medendez had killed at least 471 people out of perhaps 800, including those who had arrived with a Rabot only three weeks before. There was a coda of sorts. When word of the massacre got back to France, both Protestants and Catholics were outraged. Philip II stiff-armed the official French protest, which only deepened French hostility. In 1568, a French nobleman named Dominique de Groges raised the money to finance an expedition to San Mateo, the site of the former Fort Caroline, to exact revenge. De Gorge's men approached San Mateo through nearly impassable salt marshes, cutting their feet on the thick layer of oyster shells on the bottom, and were rewarded when they surprised the Spanish garrison lounging around after lunch. The French slew most of them. De Gorge tacked a sign up over their bodies that said simply, not as Spaniards, but as murderers. This is a good place to stop today. The story of Charles Fort and Fort Caroline is much underappreciated in the history of the Americans. It would echo repeatedly, including in the founding of St. Augustine, the oldest city that still exists in today's United States, and English plans for the settlement of Virginia, which, like La Florida, far exceeded the boundaries of the modern U.S. state with the name. The history around these events continues to evolve even now. In 2012, a historian uncovered the first complete version of a chronicle of these events written by the son-in-law of Pedro Menendez, who was along on the mission to destroy Fort Caroline. Next week, we will consider these same events, but from the Spanish point of view. Thank you again for listening. Please follow us on the History of the Americans podcast Facebook page and subscribe in your podcast app of choice. Online reviews and five-star ratings are especially motivating. Finally, you can send me questions, pats on the back, corrections, and eruptions of outrage by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com or comment on the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com. <laughs>